Act Four, Scene One of No Thoroughfare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. No Thoroughfare by Charles Dickens and Wilkie Collins. Act Four, Scene One. The Clock Lock. The pleasant scene was Neuchatel. The pleasant month was April. The pleasant place was a notary's office. The pleasant person in it was the notary. A rosy, hearty, handsome old man, chief notary of Neuchatel, known far and wide in the canton as Matrevox. Professionally and personally, the notary was a popular citizen. His innumerable kindnesses and his innumerable oddities had for years made him one of the recognised public characters of the pleasant Swiss town. His long brown frock-coat and his black skull-cap were among the institutions of the place, and he carried a snuff-box which in point of size was popularly believed to be without a parallel in Europe. There was another person in the notary's office, not so pleasant as the notary. This was Obenreiser. An oddly pastoral kind of office it was, and one that would never have answered in England. It stood in a neat backyard, fenced off from a pretty flower-garden. Goats browsed in the doorway, and a cow was within half a dozen feet of keeping company with the clerk. Matrevox's room was a bright and varnished little room, with panelled walls like a toy chamber. According to the seasons of the year, roses, sunflowers, hollyhocks peeped in at the windows. Matrevox bees hummed through the office all the summer, in at this window and out at that, taking it frequently in their day's work, as if honey were to be made from Matrevox's sweet disposition. A large musical box on the chimney-piece often trilled away to the overture to Fra Diavolo, or a selection from William Tell, with a chirruping liveliness that had to be stopped by force on the entrance of a client, and irrepressibly broke out again the moment his back was turned. "'Courage, courage, my good fellow,' said Maitre Voch, patting Obenreiser on the knee in a fatherly and comforting way. "'You will begin a new life to-morrow morning in my office here.' Obenreiser, dressed in mourning and subdued in manner, lifted his hand with a white handkerchief in it to the region of his heart. "'The gratitude is here,' he said. "'But the words to express it are not here.' "'Ta-ta-ta! Don't talk to me about gratitude,' said Maitre Voch. "'I hate to see a man oppressed.' I see you oppressed, and I hold out my hand to you by instinct. Besides, I am not too old yet to remember my young days. Your father sent me my first client. It was on a question of half an acre of vineyard that seldom bore any grapes. Do I owe nothing to your father's son? I owe him a debt of friendly obligation, and I pay it to you. "'That's rather neatly expressed, I think,' added Maitre Voch, in high good humour with himself. "'Permit me to reward my own merit with a pinch of snuff.' Obenreiser dropped his eyes to the ground, as though he were not even worthy to see the notary take snuff. "'Do me one last favour, sir,' he said, when he raised his eyes. "'Do not act on impulse.' Thus far you have only a general knowledge of my position. Hear the case for and against me, in its details, before you take me into your office. Let my claim on your benevolence be recognised by your sound reason, as well as by your excellent heart. In that case I may hold up my head against the bitterest of my enemies, and build myself a new reputation on the ruins of the character I have lost. "'As you will,' said Maitre Voigt. "'You'll speak well, my son. You will be a fine lawyer one of these days.' "'The details are not many,' 
pursued Obenreizer. "'My troubles begin with the accidental death of my late travelling companion, my dear lost friend, Mr. Vendale.' "'Mr. Vendale,' repeated the notary, "'just so. I have heard and read of the name several times within these two months. The name of the unfortunate English gentleman who was killed on the Simplon, when you got that scar upon your cheek and neck. "'From my own knife!' said Obenreizer, touching what must have been an ugly gash at the time of its infliction. "'From your own knife!' assented the rotary, and in trying to save him. Good, good, good! That was very good! Vendale, yes, I have several times lately thought it droll that I should once have had a client of that name. But the world, sir, returned Obenreizer, is so small. Nevertheless, he made a mental note that the notary had once had a client of that name. As I was saying, sir, the death of that dear travelling comrade begins my troubles. What follows? I save myself. I go down to Milan. I am received with coldness by de Fresnia and company. Shortly afterwards I am discharged by de Fresnia and company. Why? They give no reason why. I ask, do they assail my honour? No answer. I ask, what is the imputation against me? No answer. I ask, where are their proofs against me? No answer. I ask, what am I to think? The reply is, Monsieur Obenreizer is free to think what he will. What Monsieur Obenreizer thinks is of no importance to de Fresnier and company, and that is all. Perfectly. That is all, asserted the notary, taking a large pinch of snuff. But is that enough, sir? That is not enough, said Maitre Vox. The house of de Fresnier are my fellow townsmen, much respected, much esteemed. But the house of de Fresnier must not silently destroy a man's character. You can rebut assertion. But how can you rebut silence? Your sense of justice, my dear Petron, answered Obenreizer, states in a word the cruelty of the case. Does it stop there? No, for what follows upon that? True, my poor boy, said the notary, with a comforting nod or two. Your ward rebels upon that. Rebels is too soft a word, retorted Obenreizer. My ward revolts from me with horror. My ward defies me. My ward withdraws herself from my authority, and takes shelter, Madame Dor with her, in the house of that English lawyer, Mr. Bintrey, who replies to your summons to her to submit herself to my authority, that she will not do so. And who afterwards writes, said the notary, moving his large snuff-box, to look among the papers underneath it for the letter, that he is coming to confer with me. Indeed, replied Obenreizer, rather checked. Well, sir, have I no legal rights? Assuredly, my poor boy, returned the notary, all but felons have their legal rights. "'And who calls me felon?' said Obenreizer fiercely. "'No one. Be calm under your wrongs. "'If the house of de Fresnia would call you felon, "'indeed we should know how to deal with them.' While saying these words, he had handed Bintrey's very short letter to Obenreizer, who now read it and gave it back. "'In saying,' observed Obenreizer, with recovered composure, that he is coming to confer with you? This English lawyer means that he is coming to deny my authority over my ward. You think so? I am sure of it. I know him. He is obstinate and contentious. You will tell me, my dear sir, whether my authority is unassailable until my ward is of age. Absolutely unassailable 
I will enforce it. I will make her submit to it. For, said Obenreizer, changing his angry tone to one of grateful submission, I owe it to you, sir, to you who have so confidingly taken an injured man under your protection and into your employment. Make your mind easy, said Maitre Vault. No more of this now, and no thanks. Be here to-morrow morning before the other clerk comes, between seven and eight. You will find me in this room, and I will initiate you in your work. Go away, go away, I have letters to write. I won't hear a word more. Dismissed with this generous abruptness, and satisfied with the favourable impression he had left on the old man's mind, Obenreizer was at leisure to revert to the mental note he had made that Maitre Vaux once had a client whose name was Vendale. "'I ought to know England well enough by this time,' so his meditations ran as he sat on a bench in the yard, "'and it is not a name I ever encountered there except—' he looked involuntarily over his shoulder, "'as his name.' Is the world so small that I cannot get away from him, even now when he is dead? He confessed at the last that he had betrayed the trust of the dead, and misinherited a fortune, and I was to see to it, and I was to stand off that my face might remind him of it. Why my face, unless it concerned me? I am sure of his words, for they have been in my ears ever since. Can there be anything bearing on them in the keeping of this old idiot? Anything to repair my fortunes and blacken his memory? He dwelt upon my earliest remembrances that night at Baal. Why, unless he had a purpose in it? Maitre Vaux's two largest he-goats were butting at him to butt him out of the place, as if for that disrespectful mention of their master. So he got up and left the place. But he walked alone for a long time on the border of the lake, with his head drooped in deep thought. Between seven and eight next morning he presented himself again at the office. He found the notary ready for him, at work on some papers which had come in on the previous evening. In a few clear words, Maitre Vox explained the routine of the office, and the duties Obenreizer would be expected to perform. It still wanted five minutes to eight, when the preliminary instructions were declared to be complete. "'I will show you over the house and the offices,' said Maitre Vox. "'But I must put away these papers first. They come from the municipal authorities, and they must be taken special care of. Obenreizer saw his chance here of finding out the repository in which his employer's private papers were kept. "'Can't I save you the trouble, sir?' he asked. "'Can't I put these documents away under your directions?' Maitre Vox laughed softly to himself closed the portfolio in which the papers had been sent to him, handed it to Obenreizer. "'Suppose you try,' he said. "'All my papers of importance are kept yonder.' He pointed to a heavy oaken door, thickly studded with nails at the lower end of the room. Approaching the door with the portfolio, Obenreizer discovered to his astonishment that there were no means whatever of opening it from the outside. There was no handle, no bolt, no key, and, climax of passive obstruction, no keyhole. "'There is a second door to this room,' said Obenreizer, appealing to the notary. "'No,' said Maitre Vaux. "'Guess again.' "'There is a window?' "'Nothing of the sort.' The window has been bricked up. The only way in is the way by that door. And do you give it up? cried Maitre Vaux in high triumph. Listen, my good fellow, and tell me if you hear nothing inside. Obenreizer listened for a moment, and started back from the door. I know, he exclaimed, 
I heard of this when I was apprenticed here at the watchmaker's. Perrin Brothers have finished their famous clock-lock at last, and you have got it. Bravo, said Maitre Vox. The clock-lock it is. There, my son, there you have one more of what the good people of this town call Daddy Vox follies. With all my heart, let those laugh who win. No thief can steal my keys, no burglar can pick my lock, no power on earth short of a battering ram or a barrel of gunpowder can move that door, till my little sentinel inside, my worthy friend who goes tick, tick, as I tell him, says, open. The big door obeys the little tick, tick, and the little tick, tick obeys me. That, cried Daddy Vox, slapping his fingers, for all the thieves in Christendom. May I see it in action? asked Obenreizer. Pardon my curiosity, dear sir. You know that I was once a tolerable worker in the clock trade. Certainly you shall see it in action, said Maitre Vox. What is the time now, or oh, one minute to eight? Watch, and in one minute you will see the door open of itself. In one minute, smoothly and slowly and silently, as if invisible hands had set it free, the heavy door opened inward, and disclosed a dark chamber beyond. On three sides shelves filled the wall from floor to ceiling. Arranged on the shelves were rows upon rows of boxes made in the pretty inlaid woodwork of Switzerland, and bearing inscribed on their fronts, for the most part in fanciful coloured letters, the names of the notary's clients. Maitre Voc lighted a taper, and led the way into the room. "'You shall see the clock,' he said proudly. "'I possess the greatest curiosity in Europe. It is only a privileged few whose eyes can look at it.' I give the privilege to your good father's son. You shall be one of the favoured few who enter the room with me. See, here it is, on the right-hand wall at the side of the door. An ordinary clock? exclaimed Obenreizer. No, not an ordinary clock. It has only one hand. Aha, said Maitre Vox. Not an ordinary clock, my friend, no, no. That one hand goes round the dial. As I put it, so it regulates the hour at which the door shall open. See? The hand points to eight. At eight the door opened, as you saw for yourself. Does it open more than once in the four-and-twenty hours? asked Obenreizer. More than once? repeated the notary with great scorn. You don't know my good friend Tick-Tick. He will open the door as often as I ask him. All he wants is his directions, and he gets them here. Look, below the dial. Here is a half-circle of steel let into the wall, and here is a hand, called the regulator, that travels round it, just as my hand chooses. Notice, if you please, that there are figures to guide me on the half-circle of steel. Figure one means open once in the four-and-twenty hours. Figure two means open twice, and so on to the end. I set the regulator every morning after I have read my letters, and when I know what my day's work is to be. Would you like to see me set it now? What is to-day? Wednesday. Good! This is the day of our rifle club. There is little business to do. I grant a half-holiday. No work here to-day, after three o'clock. Let us first put away this portfolio of municipal papers there. No need to trouble Tick-Tick to open the door until eight to-morrow. Good! I leave the dial-hand at eight. I put the regulator to one. I closed the door, and closed the door remains, past all opening by anybody. 
till to-morrow morning at eight obenreizer's quickness instantly saw the means by which he might make the clock-lock betray its master's confidence and place its master's papers at his disposal stop sir he cried at the moment when the notary was closing the door don't i see something moving among the boxes on the floor there maitre vox turned his back for a moment to look in that moment obenreizer's ready hand put the regulator on from the figure one to the figure two unless the notary looked again at the half-circle of steel the door would open at eight that evening as well as at eight next morning and nobody but obenreizer would know it there is nothing said maitre Vogt. your troubles have shaken your nerves my son some shadow thrown by my taper or some poor little beetle who lives among the old lawyer's secrets running away from the light hark i hear your fellow-clerk in the room to work to work and build to-day the first step that leads to your new fortunes he good-humouredly pushed obenreizer out before him extinguished the taper with a last fond glance at his clock which passed harmlessly over the regulator beneath and closed the oaken door at three the office was shut up the notary and everybody in the notary's employment with one exception went to see the rifle shooting obenreizer had pleaded that he was not in spirits for a public festival nobody knew what had become of him it was believed that he had slipped away for a solitary walk the house and offices had been closed but a few minutes when the door of a shining wardrobe in the notary's shining room opened and obenreizer stepped out he walked to a window unclosed the shutters satisfied himself that he could escape unseen by way of the garden turned back into the room and took his place in the notary's easy chair he was locked up in the house and there were five hours to wait before eight o'clock came he wore his way through the five hours sometimes reading the books and newspapers that lay on the table sometimes thinking sometimes walking to and fro sunset came on he closed the window shutters before he kindled a light the candle lighted and the time drawing nearer and nearer he sat watch in hand with his eyes on the oaken door at eight smoothly and softly and silently the door opened one after another he read the names on the outer rows of boxes no such name as vendale he removed the outer row and looked at the row behind. These were older boxes and shabbier boxes. The four first that he examined were inscribed with French and German names. The fifth bore a name which was almost illegible. He brought it out into the room and examined it closely. There, covered thickly with time-stains and dust, was the name Vendale. The key hung to the box by a string. He unlocked the box, took out four loose papers that were in it, spread them open on the table, and began to read them. He had not so occupied a minute when his face fell from its expression of eagerness and avidity to one of haggard astonishment and disappointment. But after a little consideration he copied the papers— he then replaced the papers, replaced the box, closed the door, extinguished the candle, and stole away. As his murderous and thievish footfall passed out of the garden, the steps of the notary and someone accompanying him stopped at the front door of the house. The lamps were lighted in the little street, and the notary had his door-key in his hand. "'Pray do not pass my house, Mr. Bintrey.' he said do me the honour to come in this is one of our town half-holidays our tear but my people will be back directly it is droll that you should ask your way to the hotel of me let us eat and drink before you go there thank you not to-night said bintrey 
"'Shall I come to you at ten to-morrow?' "'I shall be enchanted, sir, to take so early an opportunity of redressing the wrongs of my injured client,' returned the good notary. "'Yes,' retorted Bintrey, "'your injured client is all very well, but a word in your ear.' He whispered to the notary and walked off. When the notary's housekeeper came home, she found him standing at his door motionless, with the key still in his hand, and the door unopened. End of Act 4, Scene 1 Recording by Alan Chant of Tunbridge, Kent, England www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk Act Four, Scene Two of No Thoroughfare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. No Thoroughfare by Charles Dickens and Wilkie Collins. Act Four, Scene Two. Obenreizer's victory. The scene shifts again, to the foot of the Simplon, on the Swiss side. In one of the dreary rooms of the dreary little inn at Brieg, Mr. Bintrey and Maitre Vox sat together at a professional council of two. Mr. Bintrey was searching in his dispatch-box, Maitre Vox was looking towards a closed door, painted brown to imitate mahogany, and communicating with an inner room. "'Isn't it time he was here?' asked the notary, shifting his position and glancing at a second door at the other end of the room, painted yellow to imitate deal. "'He is here,' answered Bintrey, after listening for a moment. The yellow door was opened by a waiter, and Obenreizer walked in. After greeting Maitre Vauc with a cordiality which appeared to cause the notary no little embarrassment, Obenreizer bowed with grave and distant politeness to Bintrey. "'For what reason have I been brought from Neuchâtel to the foot of the mountain?' he inquired, taking the seat which the English lawyer had indicated to him. "'You shall be quite satisfied on that head before our interview is over,' returned Bintrey. For the present, permit me to suggest proceeding at once to business. There has been a correspondence, Mr. Obenreizer, between you and your niece. I am here to represent your niece. In other words, you, a lawyer, are here to represent an infraction of the law. Admirably put, said Bintrey. If all the people I have to deal with were only like you, what an easy profession mine would be! I am here to represent an infraction of the law. That is your point of view. I am here to make a compromise between you and your niece. That is my point of view. There must be two parties to a compromise, rejoined Obenreizer. I decline in this case to be one of them. The law gives me authority to control my niece's actions until she comes of age. She is not yet of age, and I claim my authority. At this point Maitre attempted to speak. Bintrey silenced him with a compassionate indulgence of tone and manner, as if he were silencing a favourite child. "'No, my worthy friend, not a word. Don't excite yourself unnecessarily. Leave it to me.' He turned and addressed himself again to Obenreizer. "'I can think of nothing comparable to you, Mr. Obenreizer, but granite. And even that wears out in the course of time. In the interests of peace and quietness, for the sake of your own dignity, relax a little. 
if you will only delegate your authority to another person whom I know of, that person may be trusted never to lose sight of your niece, night or day. "'You are wasting your time and mine,' returned Obenreizer. "'If my niece is not rendered up to my authority with one week from this day, I invoke the law. If you resist the law, I take her by force.' He rose to his feet as he said the last word. Maitre Voc looked round again towards the brown door which led to the inner room. "'Have some pity on the poor girl,' pleaded Bintrey. "'Remember how lately she lost her lover by a dreadful death. Will nothing move you?' "'Nothing!' Bintrey, in his turn, rose to his feet and looked at Maitre Voc. Maitre Voc's hand, resting on the table, began to tremble. Maitre Voc's eyes remained fixed, as if by irresistible fascination, on the brown door. Obenreizer, suspiciously observing him, looked that way too. "'There is somebody listening in there!' he exclaimed, with a sharp backward glance at Bintrey. "'There are two people listening,' answered Bintrey. "'Who are they?' "'You shall see.' With this answer he raised his voice and spoke the next words, the two common words which are on everybody's lips at every hour of the day. "'Come in!' The brown door opened. Supported on Marguerite's arm, his sunburnt colour gone, his right arm bandaged and slung over his breast, Vendale stood before the murderer a man risen from the dead. In the moment of silence that followed, the singing of a caged bird in the courtyard outside was the one sound stirring in the room. Maitre Voc touched Bintrey and pointed to Obenreizer. "'Look at him,' said the notary, in a whisper. The shock had paralysed every movement in the villain's body, but the movement of the blood. His face was like the face of a corpse. The one vestige of colour left in it was a livid purple streak which marked the course of the scar where his victim had wounded him on the cheek and neck. Speechless, breathless, motionless alike in eye and limb, it seemed as if at the sight of Vendale the death to which he had doomed Vendale had struck him where he stood. "'Someone ought to speak to him,' said Maitre Voc. "'Shall I?' Even at that moment Bintrey persisted in silencing the notary, and in keeping the lead in the proceedings to himself. Checking Maitre Voc's by a gesture, he dismissed Marguerite and Vendale in these words. "'The object of your appearance here is answered.' he said, if you will withdraw for the present, it may help Mr. Obenreizer to recover himself. It did help him. As the two passed through the door and closed it behind them, he drew a deep breath of relief. He looked round the room for the chair from which he had risen and dropped into it. Give him time, pleaded Maitre Vox. No, said Bintrey. I don't know what use he may make of it if I do. He turned once more to Obenreizer and went on. I owe it to myself, he said. I don't admit, mind, that I owe it to you, to account for my appearance in these proceedings, and to state what has been done under my advice and on my sole responsibility. Can you listen to me? I can listen to you. Recall the time when you started for Switzerland with Mr. Vendale, Bintrey began. You had not left England four-and-twenty hours before your niece committed an act of imprudence which not even your penetration could foresee. She followed her promised husband on his journey, without asking anybody's advice or permission, and without any better companion to protect her than a cellarman in Mr. Vendale's employment. 
"'Why did she follow me on the journey, "'and how came the cellarman to be the person who accompanied her?' "'She followed you on the journey,' answered Bintrey, "'because she suspected that there had been some serious collision "'between you and Mr. Vendale, which had been kept secret from her, "'and because she rightly believed you to be capable of serving your interests, "'or of satisfying your enmity,' at the price of a crime. As for the cellarman, he was one among the people in Mr. Vendale's establishment to whom she had applied the moment your back was turned to know if anything had happened between their master and you. The cellarman alone had something to tell her, a senseless superstition, and a common accident which had happened to his master in his master's cellar, had connected Mr. Vendale in this man's mind with the idea of danger by murder. Your niece surprised him into a confession which aggravated tenfold the terrors that possessed her. Aroused by a sense of the mischief he had done, the man of his own accord made the one atonement in his power. "'If my master is in danger, miss,' he said, "'it's my duty to follow him too, "'and it's more than my duty to take care of you.' The two set forth together, and for once a superstition has had its use. It decided your niece on taking the journey— and it led the way to saving a man's life. Do you understand me so far? I understand you so far. The first knowledge of the crime that you had committed, pursued Bintrey, came to me in the form of a letter from your niece. All you need to know is that her love and her courage recovered the body of your victim— and aided the after-efforts which brought him back to life. While he lay helpless and brig under her care, she wrote to me to come out to him. Before starting, I informed Madame Dour that I knew Miss Obenreiser to be safe, and knew where she was. Madame Dour informed me in return that a letter had come from your niece which she knew to be in your handwriting. I took possession of it, and arranged for the forwarding of any other letters which might follow. Arrived at Brieg, I found Mr. Vendale out of danger, and at once devoted myself to hastening the day of reckoning with you. Defresnier and company turned you off on suspicion, acting on information privately supplied by me. Having stripped you of your false character, the next thing to do was to strip you of your authority over your niece. To reach this end I not only had no scruple in digging the pitfall under your feet in the dark, I felt a certain professional pleasure in fighting you with your own weapons. By my advice the truth has been carefully concealed from you up to this day. By my advice, the trap into which you have walked was set for you. You know why now, as well as I do, in this place. There was but one certain way of shaking the devilish self-control which has hitherto made you a formidable man. That way has been tried, and, look at me as you may, that way has succeeded. The last thing that remains to be done— concluded Bintrey, producing two little slips of manuscript from his dispatch-box, is to set your niece free. You have attempted murder, and you have committed forgery and theft. We have the evidence ready against you in both cases. If you are convicted as a felon, you know as well as I do what becomes of your authority over your niece. Personally, I should have preferred taking that way out. But considerations are pressed on me which I am not able to resist, and this interview must end, as I have told you already, in a compromise. Sign those lines, resigning all authority over Miss Obenreiser, 
and pledging yourself never to be seen in England or in Switzerland again, and I will sign an indemnity which secures you against further proceedings on our part. Obenreiser took the pen in silence and signed his niece's release. On receiving the indemnity in return, he rose, but made no movement to leave the room. He stood looking at Maitre Voc with a strange smile gathering at his lips, and a strange light flashing in his filmy eyes. "'What are you waiting for?' asked Bintrey. Obenreiser pointed to the brown door. "'Call them back?' he answered. "'I have something to say in their presence before I go.' "'Say it in my presence,' retorted Bintrey. "'I decline to call them back.' Obenreiser turned to Maitre Voc. "'Do you remember telling me that you once had an English client named Vendale?' he asked. "'Well,' answered the notary, "'and what of that?' "'Maitre Voc, your clock-lock has betrayed you.' "'What do you mean?' "'I have read the letters and certificates in your client's box. "'I have taken copies of them. "'I have got the copies here. "'Is there, or is there not, a reason for calling them back?' "'For a moment the notary looked to and fro "'between Obenreiser and Bintrey in helpless astonishment.' Recovering himself, he drew his brother-lawyer aside, and hurriedly spoke a few words close at his ear. The face of Bintrey, after first faithfully reflecting the astonishment on the face of Maitre Voc, suddenly altered its expression. He sprang with the activity of a young man to the door of the inner room, entered it, remained inside for a minute, and returned, followed by Marguerite and Vendale. "'Now, Mr. Obenreiser,' said Bintrey, "'the last move in the game is yours. Play it.' "'Before I resign my position as that young lady's guardian,' said Obenreiser, "'I have a secret to reveal in which she is interested. "'In making my disclosure, I am not claiming her attention for a narrative which she or any other person present is expected to take on trust. I am possessed of written proofs, copies of originals, the authenticity of which Maitre Voc himself can attest. Bear that in mind, and permit me to refer you, at starting, to a date long past, the month of February, in the year one thousand eight hundred and thirty-six. "'Mark the date, Mr. Vendale,' said Bintrey. "'My first proof,' said Obenreiser, taking a paper from his pocket-book, "'copy of a letter written by an English lady, married to her sister a widow. The name of the person writing the letter I shall keep suppressed until I have done.' The name of the person to whom the letter is written, I am willing to reveal. It is addressed to Mrs. Jane Anne Miller, of Groombridge Wells, England. Vendale started, and opened his lips to speak. Bintrey instantly stopped him, as he had stopped Maitre Vox. No, said the pertinacious lawyer, leave it to me. Obenreiser went on. "'It is needless to trouble you with the first half of the letter,' he said. "'I can give the substance of it in two words. "'The writer's position at this time is this. "'She has been long living in Switzerland with her husband, "'obliged to live there for the sake of her husband's health. "'They are about to move to a new residence in the lake of Neuchâtel in a week.' and they will be ready to receive Mrs. Miller as a visitor in a fortnight from that time. This said, the writer next enters into an important domestic detail. She has been childless for years. She and her husband have now no hope of children. They are lonely. They want an interest in life. They have decided on adopting a child." Here the important part of the letter begins, and here, therefore, I read it to you word for word. 
He folded back the first page of the letter and read as follows. Will you help us, my dear sister, to realise our new project? As English people we wish to adopt an English child. This may be done, I believe, at the foundling. My husband's lawyers in London will tell you how. I leave the choice to you, with only these conditions attached to it, that the child is to be an infant under a year old, and is to be a boy. Will you pardon the trouble I am giving you, for my sake, and will you bring our adopted child to us, with your own children, when you come to Neuchâtel? I must add a word as to my husband's wishes in this matter. He is resolved to spare the child whom we make our own any future mortification and loss of self-esteem which might be caused by a discovery of his true origin. He will bear my husband's name, and he will be brought up in the belief that he is really our son. His inheritance of what we have to leave will be secured to him, not only according to the laws of England in such cases, but according to the laws of Switzerland also, for we have lived so long in this country that there is a doubt whether we may not be considered as domiciled in Switzerland. The one precaution left to take is to prevent any after-discovery at the foundling. Now our name is a very uncommon one, and if we appear on the register of the institution as the persons adopting the child, there is just a chance that something might result from it. Your name, my dear, is the name of thousands of other people, and if you will consent to appear on the register, there need be no fear of any discoveries in that quarter. We are moving by the doctor's orders to a part of Switzerland in which our circumstances are quite unknown, and you, as I understand, are about to engage a new nurse for the journey when you come to see us. Under these circumstances, the child may appear as my child, brought back to me under my sister's care. The only servant we take with us from our old home is my own maid, who can be safely trusted. As for the lawyers in England and in Switzerland, it is their profession to keep secrets, and we may feel quite easy in that direction. So there you have our harmless little conspiracy. Write by return of post, my love, and tell me you will join it. "'Do you still conceal the name of the writer of that letter?' asked Vendale. "'I keep the name of the writer till the last,' answered Obenreizer, "'and I proceed to my second proof. "'A mere slip of paper this time, as you see. "'Memorandum given to the Swiss lawyer, "'who drew the documents referred to in the letter I have just read, "'expressed as follows.' Adopted from the Foundling Hospital of England, 3rd of March, 1836, a male infant called in the institution Walter Wilding, person appearing on the register as adopting the child, Mrs. Jane Ann Miller, widow, acting in this matter for her married sister, domiciled in Switzerland. Patience, resumed Obenreizer, as Vendale, breaking loose from Bintry, started to his feet. I shall not keep the name concealed much longer. Two more little slips of paper, and I have done. Third proof. Certificate of Dr. Gantz, still living, in practice at Neuchâtel, dated July 1838. The doctor certifies. You shall read it for yourselves directly. First, that he attended the adopted child in his infant maladies. Second, that three months after the date of the certificate, the gentleman adopting the child as his son died. Third, that on the date of the certificate, the widow and her maid, taking the adopted child with them, left Neuchâtel on their return to England. One more link now added to this, and my chain of evidence is complete. The maid remained with her mistress till her mistress's death only a few years since. The maid can swear to the identity of the adopted infant from his childhood to his youth, from his youth to his manhood, as he is now. There is her address in England, and there, Mr. Vendale, is the fourth and final proof. "'Why do you address yourself to me?' said Vendale, 
as Obenreizer threw the written address on the table. Obenreizer turned on him in a sudden frenzy of triumph. "'Because you are the man! If my niece marries you, she marries a bastard brought up by public charity. If my niece marries you, she marries an impostor without name or lineage, disguised in the character of a gentleman of rank and family.' "'Bravo!' cried Bintrey. "'Admirably put, Mr. Obenreizer. It only wants one word more to complete it. She marries, thanks entirely to your exertions, a man who inherits a handsome fortune, and a man whose origin will make him prouder than ever of his peasant wife. George Vendale, as brother executors, let us congratulate each other. Our dear dead friend's last wish on earth is accomplished. We have found the lost Walter Wilding. As Mr. Obenreiser just said now, you are the man. The words passed by Vendale unheeded. For the moment he was conscious of but one sensation. He heard but one voice. Marguerite's hand was clasping his. Marguerite's voice was whispering to him. I never loved you, George, as I love you now. End of Act Four, Scene Two. Recording by Alan Chant of Tunbridge, Kent, England. www.sevenoaksprep.kent.sch.uk Act Four, Scene Three, of No Thoroughfare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. No Thoroughfare by Charles Dickens and Wilkie Collins. Act Four, Scene Three. The Curtain Falls May Day There is merry-making in Cripple Corner. The chimneys smoke, the patriarchal dining-hall is hung with garlands, and Mrs. Goldstraw, the respected housekeeper, is very busy. For on this bright morning the young master of Cripple Corner is married to its young mistress far away, to wit, in the little town of Brieg in Switzerland, lying at the foot of the Simplon Pass, where she saved his life. The bells ring gaily in the little town of Brieg, and flags are stretched across the street, and rifle-shots are heard, and sounding music from brass instruments. Streamer-decorated casks of wine have been rolled out under a gay awning in the public way before the inn, and there will be free feasting and revelry. What with bells and banners, draperies hanging from windows, explosions of gunpowder, and reverberation of brass music, the little town of Brieg is all in a flutter, like the hearts of its simple people. It was a stormy night last night, and the mountains are covered with snow. But the sun is bright to-day, the sweet air is fresh, the tin spires of the little town of Brieg are burnished silver, and the Alps are ranges of far-off white cloud in a deep blue sky. The primitive people of the little town of Brieg have built a greenwood arch across the street, under which the newly married pair shall pass in triumph from the church. It is inscribed on that side, Honour and love to Marguerite Vendale, for the people are proud of her to enthusiasm. This greeting of the bride under her new name is affectionately meant as a surprise, and therefore the arrangement has been made that she, unconscious why, shall be taken to church by a tortuous back way, a scheme not difficult to carry into execution in the crooked little town of Brieg. So all things are in readiness, and they are to go and come on foot. 
assembled in the inn's best chamber, festively adorned, are the bride and bridegroom, the Neuchatel notary, the London lawyer, Madame Dour, and a certain large, mysterious Englishman, popularly known as Monsieur Zoé Ladelle. And behold Madame Dour, arrayed in a spotless pair of gloves of her own, with no hand in the air, but both hands clasped round the neck of the bride, to embrace whom Madame Dour has turned her broad back on the company, consistent to the last. "'Forgive me, my beautiful,' pleads Madame Dour, "'for that I ever was his she-cat.' "'She-cat, Madame Dour.' engaged to sit watching my so-charming mouse are the explanatory words of madame dor delivered with a penitential sob why you were our best friend george dearest tell madame dor was she not our best friend absolutely darling what should we have done without her you are both so generous cries Madame Dor, accepting consolation, and immediately relapsing. But I commenced as a she-cat. Ah, but like the cat in the fairy story, good Madame Dor, says Vendale, saluting her cheek, you were a true woman, and being a true woman, the sympathy of your heart was with true love. I don't wish to deprive Madame Dor of her share in the embraces that are going on, Mr. Bintrey puts in, watch in hand, and I don't presume to offer any objection to your having got yourselves mixed together in the corner there, like the three graces. I merely remark that I think it's time we were moving. What are your sentiments on that subject, Mr. Ladle? Clear, sir, replies Joey, with a gracious grin. I'm clearer altogether, sir, for having lived so many weeks upon the surface. I never was half so long upon the surface afore, and it's done me a power o' good. At Cripple Corner I was too much below it. Atop o' the Simpleton I was a deal too high above it. I found the medium here, sir and if ever I take it in convivial in all the rest of my days, I mean to do it this day to the toast of bless em both. I too, says Bintrey, and now, Monsieur Vogt, let you and me be two men of Marseilles, and alongs Marchands, arm in arm. They go down to the door where others are waiting for them, and they go quietly to the church, and the happy marriage takes place. While the ceremony is yet in progress, the notary is called out. When it is finished, he has returned, is standing behind Vendale, and touches him on the shoulder. Go to the side door one moment, Monsieur Vendale. Alone. Leave Madame to me. At the side door of the church are the same two men from the hospice. They are snow-stained and travel-worn. They wish him joy, and then each lays his broad hand upon Vendale's breast, and one says in a low voice, while the other steadfastly regards him, It is here, monsieur, your litter, the very same. My litter is here, why? Hush, for the sake of madame. "'Your companion of that day. "'What of him?' "'The man looks at his comrade, and his comrade takes him up. "'Each keeps his hand laid earnestly on Vendale's breast. "'He has been living at the first refuge, monsieur, for some days. "'The weather was now good, now bad.' "'Yes?' "'He arrived at our hospice the day before yesterday, "'and having refreshed himself with sleep on the floor before the fire,' wrapped in his cloak, was resolute to go on before dark to the next hospice. He had a great fear of that part of the way, and thought it would be worse to-morrow. Yes? He went on alone. He had passed the gallery when an avalanche, like that which fell behind you near the bridge of the Gantha, killed him? We dug him out, suffocated and broken all to pieces. But, monsieur, as to madame, we have brought him here on the litter to be buried. 
We must ascend the street outside. Madame must not see. It would be an accursed thing to bring the litter through the arch across the street until Madame has passed through. As you descend, we who accompany the litter will set it down on the stones of the street, the second to the right, and will stand before it. But do not let Madame turn her head towards the street, the second to the right. There is no time to lose. Madame will be alarmed by your absence. Adieu. Vendale returns to his bride, and draws her hand through his unmaimed arm. A pretty procession awaits them at the main door of the church. They take their station in it, and descend the street amidst the ringing of the bells, the firing of the guns, the waving of the flags, the playing of the music, the shouts, the smiles, and tears of the excited town. Heads are uncovered as she passes, hands are kissed to her, all the people bless her. Heaven's benediction on the dear girl! See where she goes in her youth and beauty, she who so nobly saved his life! Near the corner of the street, the second to the right, he speaks to her, and calls her attention to the windows on the opposite side. The corner well passed, he says, Do not look round, my darling, for a reason that I have, and turns his head. Then looking back along the street, he sees the litter and its bearers passing up alone under the arch, as he and she and their marriage train go down towards the shining valley. End of Act 4, Scene 3, and End of Act 4 And End of No Thoroughfare by Charles Dickens and Wilkie Collins Act 1 and Act 4 were co-authored by Charles Dickens and Wilkie Collins Recording by Alan Chant of Tunbridge, Kent, England in April 2007 www.sevenoaksprep.kent.com dot sch dot uk